One of the things I really like about the church calendar is the way it gets us to focus on different elements of the Bible story. In some cases, elements of the Bible story that we might otherwise uh, ignore or neglect. So, for example, 10 days ago, uh, we celebrated Ascension Day. On Ascension Thursday, we, we celebrated the ascent of Jesus into heaven. Now, if you don't follow the church calendar, if you don't do anything with the church calendar, you might largely skip over the ascension. You might not think a whole lot about Christ ascending into heaven, being seated in heaven. Uh, his ascent into heaven is a huge deal in the scriptures. And yet, if we ignore that day in the church calendar, we may not pay much attention to it. Uh, the ascension is actually a, a, a huge deal and needs to be honored and celebrated every bit as much as Christ's birth and death and resurrection. The same could be said of Pentecost, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, the celebration of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, we celebrate the Holy Spirit. Specifically, we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Father giving the Spirit to the church, pouring out the Spirit on the church through the Son. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, ten days after his ascension into heaven, Christ poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people. Now, Pentecost may not uh, have many great traditions associated with it. There aren't uh, a lot of uh, famous Pentecost hymns uh, like there are, say, for Christmas or for Easter. But Pentecost is a huge deal. I think particularly in our own Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, we need to pay more attention to Pentecost than we typically do. You know, sometimes we think, oh, we Presbyterians, you know, we're, we're not going to be speaking in tongues. Uh, we are uh, a people who really like order. We like to emphasize how the Spirit brings order. And so a lot of the things associated with Pentecost, they make us uncomfortable. They get us out of our comfort zone. It's easy for us to neglect Pentecost. It's easy for us to neglect the Holy Spirit. Well, the reality is Presbyterians need Pentecost. Uh, all Christians need Pentecost. We need to embrace this day. We need to celebrate this historical event. We need this day to remind us what God did in pouring out his spirit upon the church, what that means for the church, what it meant for the church then, what it means for the church today, because really it means everything. So what does it mean to celebrate Pentecost? What does Pentecost mean for the church? What are the implications of this event recorded in Acts 2 for us today? When we look at the event of Acts chapter 2 carefully, uh, what we find is a new way of understanding our identity as the people of God, a new way of understanding our mission. If you really want to understand what it means to be the church and what God calls us to do and what God calls us to be at the church, you have to understand Pentecost. Because Pentecost really gives us an ecclesiology. It gives us a way of understanding the ecclesia, the church, what it means to be the people of God. And so it doesn't just challenge and change how we think, but also how we live and how we act. Think about it this way. The Old Testament uh, is full of various streams. Think of the Old Testament as having a lot of different streams. All, you know, in Alabama, we might say creeks. A lot of different little creeks. A lot of different little tributaries. Each one flowing with its own current. At Pentecost, all of those various streams, all those various creeks and tributaries of the Old Testament, all come together into one giant, rushing, powerful river. 
And what I want to do for you this morning is follow some of those smaller streams as they feed into this huge rushing river of Pentecost. And I think you'll see what I mean as we go. Verse 1 tells us this was on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost actually is an old covenant feast, and that's why the people are gathered in Jerusalem. This is a feast that was established uh, in the time of Moses and is regulated by the law of Moses. And during the Feast of Pentecost, the people would gather in Jerusalem for a feast. Again, it came seven weeks or 50 days after the Passover. And on the one hand, it was a harvest feast. Uh, It was a celebration of the harvest. And really, you could say that's what it is here in Acts chapter 2. This is the beginning of the harvest of the nations. And so that fits. It's a Pentecostal event. The nations are beginning to be harvested, just as Pentecost was about the harvesting of crops. On the other hand, Pentecost was associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The giving of the law at Mount Sinai came about 50 days after they left Egypt uh, at the time of the Passover. And so Pentecost also commemorated the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, what do we see here? That too is fulfilled. At Sinai, the law was written on tablets of stone. Now here in Acts 2, at Pentecost, the law will be written on the hearts of God's people by the Spirit. In fact, it gets even more interesting than that. At Mount Sinai, 3,000 people died the day the law was given. 3,000 people died because the law was a ministry of death and ultimately would bring a curse on Israel. At Pentecost, what do we find when you get to the end of the chapter? 3,000 people are saved because the Holy Spirit brings a ministry of life and ultimately brings blessing because the Holy Spirit now empowers us to fulfill God's law in a way God's people under the old covenant did not do. Verse 2 says, when the disciples were gathered with one accord in one one place, suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a mighty rushing wind that filled the whole house. Now, what's going on here? What, What stream or tributary is this? Well, of course, in Hebrew and in Greek, the word for wind and the word for spirit is the same. So the spirit coming as a mighty rushing wind makes a lot of sense. But this actually fulfills a number of Old Testament themes. This is another stream flowing into this huge river. The Holy Spirit, in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, blew across the watery earth at creation. The earth was without form uh, and void. The earth was without form and empty in the very beginning. And Genesis 1 tells us the Holy Spirit hovered or fluttered or blew across the face of the earth, that watery earth. In Genesis chapter 2, the Spirit of God breathes into dirt. The Spirit of God is breathed into dirt and man becomes a living being. Man man is formed out of the earth, out of the dirt of the ground, and God breathes his own spirit into man and man becomes a living being. In Genesis chapter 3, the Lord comes to Adam and the woman in the garden. This is after they have sinned. It says in Genesis 3 that the Lord comes to Adam and to the woman in the garden in the wind of the day. Or we could read it as the spirit of the day. It's the ruach of the day. It's that word for spirit or breath. A lot of translations say in the cool of the day, but it's really in the spirit of the day. God is never without his breath. He's never without his spirit. 
when God comes to meet Adam and Eve, it's just, he's got this swirling whirlwind uh, that comes with him to announce his presence. Whenever God shows up, it seems wind often accompanies uh, God's presence, the manifestation of God's presence. Just like when God came to Job at the end of the book of Job, he was clothed in the whirlwind of the Spirit. So the Spirit can come like a gentle breeze or like a tornado. The Spirit can appear like a refreshing wind or like a hurricane. But all throughout Scripture, we find the Spirit associated with wind. The wind of the Spirit blows where he wills, as we learn in John chapter 3. But I think there's a, another reason for the wind phenomenon here. Uh, think about John chapter 20, where after his resurrection, seems to be on the day of Easter, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit, as if his own breath is now identified with the Holy Spirit. What is this wind here? This wind in Acts 2 is the breath of Jesus, breathing on his disciples, bringing them into his new creation, making them his new creation, making them his new humanity. And again, this was something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 37, and you find that uh, the prophet sees the people of God as a valley of dry bones, and the Spirit of God, the wind of God, blows upon those bones and brings them to life again. And that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is coming to breathe new life into God's people. And then in verse 3, it says, The Spirit appeared to them as tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit came as tongues of fire, appearing over each of the disciples. And then verse 4 tells us they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So again, other miraculous phenomenon here. The wind of the Spirit turns into the flame of the Spirit. Flames in the form of tongues resting over the heads of each of the disciples as the Spirit comes upon the people gathered in this room. And then they begin to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit enables them, a language miracle. So what are we seeing here? The Holy Spirit's already been linked with wind, and he's going to be linked with water by the time you get to the end of the chapter, with baptism. Here, the Holy Spirit is linked with fire. He's linked with fire. Well, why is the Holy Spirit associated with fire? Well, again, this is one of those Old Testament streams that we have to go back and trace into this grand flowing river at Pentecost. What's going on here? Well, think back to when Moses had the tabernacle built or when Solomon built the temple. These were houses for God. Houses for God to dwell in so God could dwell in the midst of his people. And each time God moves into a house in the midst of his people, he does so in a blaze of glory. There's this great manifestation like fire of the Shekinah glory of God. So when the tabernacle is set up and the first time sacrifices are offered, there's this visible manifestation of God's glory moving into the tabernacle and then fire falls from heaven to consume the sacrifices on the altar. That's the picture. You have fire falling from heaven to consume the sacrifices on the altar. Now, think about this. The disciples are in the city of Jerusalem. The temple is not that far away. And yet the fire of God falls from heaven on these disciples and not on that temple. What is happening? 
God is showing that from this time forward, his new house will be composed of his people, the disciples of Jesus. He is showing from this time forward, he will inhabit the temple made of people, a temple made of living stones, as Peter describes in 1 Peter 2, where he says, you are being built into a spiritual house, a place for God to dwell in. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, you're being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. See, that fiery Spirit comes to rest upon the disciples because now this is God's temple. This is God's house. In fact, it's interesting, further down, we didn't read this, but in Acts 2.36, Peter addresses all those gathered in Jerusalem for the feast, those who have heard this and have responded to his message, he addresses them as the house of Israel. House certainly could mean family, sometimes it does, but with everything else going on in this chapter, it's likely that house means house. This is God's house. God is building his house. This new temple that the prophets promised is now coming into existence. It's a temple made up of the living stones of Christ's disciples. And note too, this heavenly fire then falls on people, which means not only is the temple giving way to the church, that temple in Jerusalem giving way to this new temple of the church, but it also means the whole sacrificial system is being transformed. That sacrificial system at the temple in Jerusalem, that temple made of stone, that is now obsolete. Now there is a new sacrificial system. The new altar is being lit with the fire of the Lord. Fire falls from heaven to consume the sacrifices every time a new house for God is set up. Well, so it happens here. So no longer will the worship of God center around animal sacrifices and the Levitical priesthood in that temple in Jerusalem. No, now, as Romans 12 puts it, we will offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Paul says this is our reasonable or logical act of worship, which is to say this morning, this liturgy we're doing together, this is our sacrifice. This is our sacrifice of praise. When we confess our sins, that is our sin offering. When we share in the Lord's Supper together, that is our peace offering. This liturgy is our sacrificial offering before the Lord. What's happening right now? The sword of the word and the fire of the spirit is transforming us into living sacrifices. Just as the priest would take that sword to cut the animal apart and and arrange the pieces of the animal just right so the fire could consume it and transform it and send it up to God. As a, as a sweet-smelling aroma, that's what the Spirit is doing to you right now. The Spirit is using the sword of the Word to cut you up, to transform your life. The fire of the Spirit is transforming your life into a sweet-smelling aroma that can ascend up before the Lord. That's happening right this very moment. The Spirit is transforming us into living sacrifices. The Spirit uses the Word to cut us up, and the Spirit sets us on fire. We are spiritual sacrifices, living sacrifices, offering ourselves to God in and through the Holy Spirit. And of course, what happens here in the liturgy is really what ought to happen in all of life. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice here together 
when we are gathered as God's temple in this way, but as we scatter out from here, we continue to be living sacrifices, offering ourselves up on the altar to the Lord, being consumed with the fire and transformed by the sword of the Word. Of course, the new temple is the church. That means the old temple has to go. There can't be two temples, not for long anyway. The, Jerusalem's not big enough for both of them. You can't have two temples. It's interesting how all throughout the New Testament, this question is really one of the dominating questions. Where is the true temple of God found? That's one of the big questions that the New Testament is seeking to answer. Where are the true people of God found? Where is God's true Israel Where is his true priesthood found? Where are true sacrifices being offered? Where is the true temple found? Is the true temple that building of stone and mortar in Jerusalem? Or is it the people temple of the church? The New Testament wrestles with that question continually. You can't have two temples, so one of them's got to go. It's interesting, when Peter begins preaching in verse 14, he says, these men are not drunk. That is, they're not drunk on wine. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're intoxicated with the Spirit. They've been drinking the new wine of God's freshly poured out Spirit. And then Peter appeals to Old Testament prophecy. He says, this, meaning this series of events you are now witnessing, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This is that. You want to know what Joel was talking about in chapter 2. This is that. And then he quotes from Joel chapter 2, Joel's prophecy. It shall come to pass in the last days. Let me interrupt the quotation here and just ask a question. The last days of what? What last days was Joel talking about? Well, I think it's got to be the last days of the old covenant. It's not the last days of world history. It's the last days of the old order, the old creation. Indeed, the, the book of Acts chronicles the last days of that old world order. The book of Hebrews is all about the last days of that old world order, how that covenant has grown old and obsolete and is about to vanish. That's what it's about. So much of the New Testament is about the last days of the old covenant order and how to say goodbye. And those Jews who are pulled back to it, who are still under its gravitational pull, have got to cut themselves loose if they're really going to be faithful and enter into God's new world order, his new covenant Epoch, this new age brought in by Christ, the Messiah, this kingdom of God he has inaugurated. So you have the old order, which is about to vanish away, the new order being established. There's an overlap, at least from 30 to 70 AD. There's an overlap of that old world, which is about to die, and that new world Jesus has brought in. That's what Joel meant by last days. That's what Peter's pointing to. And then continuing the quotation, Peter quoting Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's obviously what's happened right now. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and all your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This again describes exactly what is happening as the church as a whole is being given the spirit of prophecy. And in particular, this describes this prophecy that is in Joel's vision that Peter is 
quoting from that's in Joel's prophecy. This describes the new revelations God will give in the last days of the old covenant to mark the turning of the ages. If you follow out the history of revelation, when God gives special revelation to his people, when God gives special prophetic verbal revelation to his people, it's, it's not a continuous flow. It, rather, it's punctuated. It happens at moments in history for, for brief periods of history. And then it's like you know, God's given them some new revelation and then there's a period of silence. And then God gives them some new revelation and a period of silence. You can trace this out throughout the Old Testament. It's not just a continuous flow. It's, it's punctuated. It's periodic. And, and, and every time God gives a, an intense period of revelation, it's at one of those climactic moments in redemptive history where an old covenant order is being discarded and a new covenant order is being established. Sometimes signs and wonders will accompany that revelation God is giving to show these are God's authentic spokesmen. These are the ones who are establishing the new covenant. Listen to them. That's God's pattern in history. You have these periods of special revelation to mark turning points in history. And so it is here. In the last days, God will give this spirit of prophecy so new revelation can be given and recorded for the people of God. Verse 19 then. Peter continues his quotation from Joel. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. What is this day of the Lord when the sun will be darkened and the moon reddened? This is prophetic language. This is language that's found all over the place in the Old Testament scriptures to describe judgments God brings on earthly powers, on nations and empires. It's the same language Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24 to describe the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is one of those things that was shocking to the disciples before his death and resurrection at Pentecost. Jesus is with the disciples in Jerusalem and they point to these grand temple buildings and Jesus says, not one stone of these temple buildings will be left upon another. And then they ask, when is this going to happen? What will the sign of this be? When will you come in judgment in this way? And Jesus gives them a prophecy that explains when this will happen, when the temple will be destroyed. And he says, within a generation, this generation will not pass away until all these things have come to pass. And Jesus uses the same kind of language, the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood. That's prophetic language for the destruction of a kingdom, of a nation, of a world order, of a covenant administration. And so what is this about? Well, actually did come to pass. In the Jewish war with Rome, the Romans did destroy the temple in Jerusalem. But of course, Jesus is the one who is ultimately behind that judgment. Jesus brought down the hammer on unbelieving Israel. The nation that crucified him and that persecuted his apostles and his disciples. He brought an end to old covenant Israel and to its temple. And not one stone was left upon another. And that was the definitive answer to that question. Where is the true temple? Who are the true people of God? After 70 AD, only one temple was left standing. And it was the church. The old covenant temple had been torn down so that God's new covenant temple, the church, could stand on its own. 
so that the people of God could say, we are the temple in which God dwells. We are God's house. But what this means is the event of Pentecost is not just a blessing. Certainly it is a blessing to those who are trusting in Jesus and following him, but it's also a warning. It's a warning particularly to those Jews who were rejecting the Spirit and the Son. They rejected the Son. That could still be forgiven if they reject the Spirit, that second witness. That won't be forgiven. And they will be destroyed in this coming conflagration of 70 A.D. Now, let's continue on with this. The main Old Testament stream flowing into Pentecost is actually the Tower of Babel story from Genesis chapter 11. Maybe that's obvious. You can't help, but when you read this story, think of the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis chapter 11. What's going on in Genesis chapter 11? If this is the background of Pentecost, the most important Old Testament background, what's going on in Genesis chapter 11? Well, in Genesis 11, we find that humanity is united together But humanity is united together in rebellion against God. They're refusing to spread out across the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Instead, they're bunched up together. And they're doing this because they want to make a great name for themselves. And so they want to build a city and a tower up to the heavens. It's as if they want to build this tower to the heavens so they can storm the gate of heaven and take over God's throne room. Man wants to be as God. It's the same lie Adam and Eve fell for in the Garden of Eden. Now humanity as a whole falls for it. They want to be their own God or gods. It's interesting. Babel means gate of heaven. That's what they wanted to build, a gate of heaven. Or gate of God is actually what it means. They want to build a gate of God, a gate to God's throne room so they can become the masters of the universe themselves. That's humanity's aspiration at this point in history. And they are united in language and in confession. It actually says at the beginning of Genesis chapter 11, they were united in language and speech. And that sounds redundant, but the word there for speech, it could also be translated lip. It actually stands for religious confession. It means they were united in their language. They could communicate with each other, but it also means they shared a common religious confession. The way that word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament bears that out again and again and again. It's used to describe not just the language of people speak, but their religious confession. And so humanity is united culturally and linguistically. They're also united in a common religious faith in an idolatrous faith. They are united in language and religious confession. They're united in confession and culture. They are of one language and one lip. They are monocultural and monoreligious, as well as being monolingual. Well, what happens? They're building this great tower up to the heavens, and God comes down. <laughs> you ought to laugh at that. They're trying to build this great tower to the heavens and God has to come down just to get a good look at it because it's still so puny before him. It's a story's way of making a mockery of their aspirations. God comes down, sees what they are doing, and he passes judgment against them. And how does he judge them? By confusing their language so they will have to scatter out as God commanded. So in spite of themselves, they will have to fulfill God's commandment to fill the earth, to scatter out across the earth. 
Now, it should be obvious how Pentecost reverses the curse of Babel. Babel divided humanity into warring and hostile nations and people groups. But now Pentecost reunites humanity into one family. Now the nations will be joined together. And they'll be joined together in truth and worship of the one true God. They will once again be joined together in one confession of faith. Pentecost is reassembling the fragmented nations. It's making the many one again. But there's something odd about calling Pentecost a reversal of Babel. Yes, it does draw together from the many different nations a new people and unite them by giving them one confession of faith through the working of God's Spirit. But there's something odd about calling Pentecost a reversal of Babel. Because it's not really a a reversal of everything at Babel. The Holy Spirit, for example, does not make everyone speak the same language in Acts chapter 2. Why not make everybody speak one language, you know, all of humanity speaking one language, if Babel is really being reversed here? Shouldn't we go back to being monolingual? and monocultural if we're really reversing Babel. In fact, that's not what happens at all. When the Spirit is poured out, the disciples start speaking in many different languages, which is actually a lot like Babel. So in this way, it's not so much a reversal of Babel, but it's continuation. I would put it this way. It's not so much that Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. It is the redemption of Babel, the transformation of what happened at Babel. It does reverse Babel in the sense that Babel divided and Pentecost unites. That's clear. Babel divided humanity into a bunch of different people groups that would be hostile and warring against one another. Pentecost unites humanity. This fragmented humanity is now reunited. But the unity is not the unity that they had at Babel. It's a different kind of unity. It's a unity in diversity. It's a unity through the Spirit who is the bond of peace. It's not a humanistic unity of their own devising. It's a Spirit-formed, Spirit-crafted unity. What's happening at Pentecost? The Spirit comes to create one spiritual family, sharing one faith, one baptism, one table. Because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, we have one lip again, you could say, one confession. But the one lip, the one religious confession we make can be confessed in many different languages. That's really what's happening here. Within this one family the Spirit is forming at Pentecost, there is a diversity of languages and people groups. The Spirit of Pentecost creates unity in diversity and diversity in unity. So think about it this way. Before judgment at Babel, you had just unity. It was a false, idolatrous unity. But it was unity. They all spoke the same language and had the same religion. After Babel, you have diversity introduced. Now you have all these different nations, these different people groups with diverse languages and cultures and gods. And now what happens at Pentecost? Now it's unity and diversity brought together. One spirit-formed family speaking many different languages. One people, one family One church, one new Israel made up of many different ethnicities and tribes and languages. In fact, it gets even more interesting than that. 
In the Old Covenant era, there was only one holy nation, the nation of Israel. And all the Gentile nations were essentially left in darkness to go their own way. Now, there are occasional exceptions to that. We know about the Ninevites who converted at Jonah's preaching. There are a lot of what we might call Gentile God-fears. That's the name Scripture gives to them. These Gentile God-fears who remain Gentile but put their trust in the God of Israel. And they certainly share in many blessings. But they're still strangers to the covenant. They're still outsiders in a certain way. They don't have all the same blessings of Israel. With the coming of the Spirit, what's happening? Now the covenant is being opened up to all the nations. With the coming of the Spirit, the kingdom is being opened up to all nations. So the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2 is really a double-sided gift. And it's so important to see this, especially in all the debates over tongue speaking and that kind of thing today. One thing, notice, when the disciples spoke in tongues here, they were not babbling gibberish. They were speaking the gospel in known languages, not languages they had studied and learned on their own. So that's why this is a miracle. But they are speaking the gospel. They're preaching the gospel in known languages. They're preaching in a way that everybody can understand. Everybody who's gathered there from all these different people groups. So what's happening with this language miracle, this gift of tongues. Well, on the one side, on the one hand, it is judgment. It's judgment against Israel. God spoke Hebrew almost exclusively in the old covenant, in the old creation. Almost the entire Bible, except for a little bit of Daniel, is written in Hebrew in the Old Testament. All of God's prophets speak Hebrew. That's God's language in the old covenant, in the old creation. It's the language he inspired the scriptures to be written in. But now in Acts chapter 2, if God is speaking in all these other languages, what does it mean? It means Israel is being judged. In 1 Corinthians 14, 22, Paul says tongues are a sign to unbelievers. Not to believers, but to unbelievers. Specifically, unbelieving Jews. Tongues are a sign to unbelieving Jews. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28. Where God says, with men of strange tongues, I will speak to this people, and yet they will not hear me. Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 28. In Isaiah 28, Isaiah the prophet is describing how God will send the nation of Assyria to judge Israel and carry the Israelites off into slavery, into exile. And it is as if God is saying to the people of Israel, look, you will not listen to me when I speak Hebrew to you. You will not repent when I, when I send prophets to you speaking your own language, so maybe I can get your attention if I send these Gentile invaders speaking a strange language, a language you don't understand, maybe then you will listen. And so those Assyrian invaders are a sign of God's judgment. They come speaking a language the Israelites don't understand. God says, you wouldn't listen when I spoke Hebrew to you. Maybe I can get your attention through these people you won't be able to understand. People who speak a strange language. Well, that's what's happening here. God begins speaking in strange languages, languages other than Hebrew. And it is a sign of judgment against Israel, a judgment that was fulfilled in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And that's why after 70 AD, this gift of tongues largely disappears from the church, largely disappears because the judgment has fallen. 
But there's another side to this that anticipates what the new covenant is going to be all about. Another side to the gift of tongues, and it should be obvious. By speaking all of these other languages, by having God's people preach the gospel in all of these other languages, obviously God is giving a welcome to the other nations. The disciples are preaching the gospel in the native tongue of all these other people groups in many different languages. And it is a sign of the church's global mission in the new covenant. It is a sign of the church's international mission in the new covenant. God no longer speaks a single language to a single people. No, now he's sending his word out through his messengers to all nations, to all people groups, to every tribe, tongue, and language. And so it's interesting, Luke has included what we could call a table of nations in verses 9 through 11. What's interesting about that is just as with the Tower of Babel, there is a table of nations. There's a table of nations in Genesis 10, and and then the Tower of Babel story happens in Genesis chapter 11. So it is here. You have a table of nations connected with... Pentecost, with this reversal of Babel, this transformation of Babel. In fact, it's even more interesting than that. The table of nations in Genesis, 70 nations in all. 70 nations come out of the judgment at Babel. Here, Luke gives us a list of 17 nations. You might say, well, 70, 17, but we got to read the Bible with ancient eyes, looking at the scriptures the way they would have when the scriptures were written. And they knew, well, numbers are given or a list is given. You need to add it up and see what you can do with it. 70 nations in Genesis, 17 nations in Luke. 17 is 7 plus 10. 70 is 7 times 10. It's not a stretch. Luke wants us to connect this table of nations with the Tower of God. Because he wants us to see this spirit that has been poured out on the church is the spirit of mission. Indeed, the spirit that has been poured out on the church is the spirit of global conquest. The spirit has come to unite the many nations of earth into one new holy nation in Christ Jesus. Not obliterating their diversity, but sanctifying their diversity. Transforming the nations, fitting them for entrance into Christ's kingdom. So through the gospel, the spirit will harmonize the differences of these nations and bring them together, draw them together into this new family. This is what the church Catholic, small c there, small c Catholic, this is what the Catholic church is all about. This is what the communion of the saints means. The church is a global, universal body welcoming all different people groups, tribes, tongues, and languages in through Christ Jesus, through faith, in Christ Jesus. So think about it this way. You know, we certainly share a good deal in common with our fellow Americans. But what we share with our fellow Christians who are from, say, places like Mexico or Canada or China or Peru is even greater. And this is because our deepest identity is found not in our national citizenship, but in our heavenly citizenship. Our deepest identity is found in Christ and his people. That doesn't mean we dispense with our national identity. No, we want to see that national identity sanctified. We want to see it transformed by the Spirit. That national identity remains part of who I am, an important part of who I am. But my connection to the church 
to the Catholic Church, the global church is more central, it's more foundational to who I am. Professor Jim Rogers likes to say, the church is my family, the church is my city, the church is my nation. And that is exactly right. That is what Pentecost is all about. And this is so important. Because in a lot of ways, it looks like America is descending into another Babel. We have become a land of confusion, a land of chaos. And we have, if there's one thing that unites much of America, it is rebellion against God and against God's order and against God's creational law and against God's word, against God's gospel. And there's no doubt if that's the path we continue down, God will threaten to put our lights out, to cause the 50 stars of America to fall from their place in the heavens. He will cause our nation to go up in fire and smoke. Our nation has lost its once Christian consensus. We have rejected the spirit, and so we have lost the spirit's peace. Our nation's being torn apart. We are descending into what has been called identity politics. We're descending into the pit of identity politics where your skin color or your sex or your socioeconomic class or that abominable category of sexual orientation comes to be regarded as the most important thing about you. And when a nation descends into identity politics, what happens? It pits everyone against everyone else. You're pitted against all those people who do not share those particular features with you. America will not survive the perversion of identity politics if it continues. This turning of black against white, of male against female, of rich against poor, it tears us apart. The logical end of identity politics is a war of all against all. Our secular culture is groping for something universal, something that can bring us together, but our secular culture has no way to harmonize or unite these differences. Again, identity politics leads to a war of all against all, and so the question is, is there any hope? Is there any way to overcome this fragmentation and bring about a new kind of harmony, a new kind of unity? Is there any hope? Yes. And that hope dwells in you. That hope dwells in you because that hope is the Holy Spirit. Yes, the wind of the Spirit blows where he wills, but the Spirit is always pleased to use faithful Christians to further his Pentecostal mission in the world. And so in Acts 2, you've got these representatives from every nation under heaven who are converted and who are brought into the kingdom. And that's a sign It's a pointer, it's anticipatory, it's prophetic. It shows us the Spirit's work among the nations. So let me be clear here. Our calling is not to save America. Only Jesus can save. But we do have a mission to America. We don't save America, but we are called to disciple America. And that can only happen as we live faithfully, as God's Spirit-filled house, as we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in worship each Lord's Day as we live spirit-filled, spirit-directed lives, loving our neighbors in the power of the Spirit, serving our neighbors and sacrificing for our neighbors in the power of the Spirit and speaking God's wisdom and God's truth in the power of the Spirit. 
Do you want to see our nation discipled? Do you want to see our nation transformed? Do you want to see our nation united? Do you want to see all the nations of the world united? Well, there's only one way for that to happen. And that's the working of the Pentecostal spirit. Only as the Spirit works through God's people can love and truth and righteousness prevail. Only as God's Spirit works through God's people can Jesus come to be honored as King of the nations. You want to see these things happen? Walk in the power of the Spirit. Live in the power of the Spirit. Pentecost was not just some private event transforming the private lives of the disciples. Pentecost is not private any more than the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are private. Now, Isaiah promised when the Spirit is poured out, the world will be transformed. When the Spirit is poured out, Isaiah says, the wilderness will be transformed into a garden. The wilderness obviously is symbolic of humanity in its rebellion against God. The garden is a picture of human cultural flourishing when things are what they really ought to be. And so we're called as a church to be a spirit-filled society, a model society that transforms all the societies of the world. Without the spirit, people wither and die. Cultures die. Nations die. Without the spirit, all people can do is turn against those who are different from them. Without the spirit, that's what happens. Our world represents the worst of Babel. People united in idolatry, but people also divided against one another in every other way. Only through the work of God's Spirit can people be united. Pentecost is the antidote to Babel. The Spirit is the antidote to identity politics. The Spirit is the answer. That craving we have for unity, for universality, it can only be found through the Gospel and in the working of God's Spirit. The Spirit can bring together men and women, blacks and whites, rich and poor. The Spirit is the great uniter of humanity. The Spirit is our hope. The Spirit is our hope. And yet, because the Spirit is multilingual, when this unity is formed, this unity out of diversity, again, it doesn't negate that diversity, it sanctifies it. And that's what we want to see, that's what we long for. God has given us His Spirit that we might bring this about. Let's pray together.